verses 1 through 8. Exodus 24, 1 through 8. Hear now the word of your God. Then Jehovah said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And half, the, uh, half of the blood he threw against the altar. And when he took the book of the covenant and read it, the hearing of the people and said, uh, excuse me, um, yeah, it, it, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And the Lord took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Pardon my reading. I was just struck by the fact that there was a pause between the the throwing of the blood on the altar and the people, but the first people that had to once again affirm and seal the covenant, not with blood, but with their words. And then the Lord sealed it with blood. And I was suddenly struck by that. <laughs> so it doesn't happen often, but I get overwhelmed sometimes. Beloved, all flesh is as grass and as beauty as the flower of the field. The grass withers, its flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. And this is the word that was just read to you now. By God's grace, it will be will be preached. Please have a seat. It's very important to keep the flow of this book in mind because then we will keep uh, before us the forest and now get lost in the trees. You remember that Abraham was God's friend and the Lord told him that uh, when he made a covenant with Abraham that uh, his children would be uh, enslaved in a faraway land uh, for 400 years. And then after that, he would come and he would draw them out to himself, to this place, etc. And uh, all of that was a, a covenant of grace. And, and God entered into that covenant with Abraham unilaterally, as, it's, as it were, because he passed through the, the pieces of the torn sacrifices, sealing the covenant, and uh, thereby demonstrating that the onus of the delivery of that promise was all on him, was all on Jehovah, was all on Jehovah not on Abraham. And uh, a tremendous amount of grace there shown. Well, the Lord did that. He took the children of Israel out from Egypt. They had it very, very difficult there. They served Pharaoh, who was a cruel tyrant. They served with uh, much ardor. 
and uh, under hard labor, and increasingly hard labor when Pharaoh became zealous over uh, the, the leaving of his, own, of his only labor force. Now he did this not because they were numerous, not because they were holy, not that they were righteous, but because he promised Abraham that he would. And why he even promised Abraham that he would is inexplicable. God has his own mind. But he did. And he made good on that. And the people were taken out of there. And they were delivered even when the most powerful armies in the world, the most powerful king in the world, pursued them with mighty armies and great ardor. He brought them through the Red Sea. The pharaohs, are chariots, horsemen, all ground. Israel passed through, not a drop of, of, uh, of water on them. They had passed on dry land. It was, of course, a miracle. And the Lord gathered them to himself, and then he marched them up around a bit. He brought them to this place, Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai. And there they are encamped around the mountain with God in the midst, with the pillar of uh, cloud and pillar of fire on the mountain, with the mountain uh, blazing in fire and quaking, with loud trumpets and voices, with storm, earthquake, and it's quite a sight, and yet Jehovah is calling his people to draw near, but then only a few to go up the mountain. Obviously, if he wanted to consume them, he would have done that. Well, he could have had Pharaoh consume that, do that work for him. The Lord has salvation in mind. He does not have damnation in mind. And this is a gracious covenant. Uh, we need to understand that. The Lord keeps his perfections intact by being holy, and he will, he will uh, ask for the price of disdaining his law. The debt of sin, uh, he will not pardon just nilly-willy. He will exact the right equity of it, and the right equity of it is life because the soul that sins dies. But if, if the equity can be presented on behalf of the sinner by way of a substitute, then the equity is paid for, and this is exactly what is pictured in all blood atonement of all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. It's a gracious, gracious covenant. But keep in mind here that just as the Lord made friends of Abraham, but not without covenant, and the Lord will have a, a, a people to himself, in fact, a nation to himself, a, a, a seed that was promised uh, to Abraham and now come to be multitudes and multitudes uh, before him the, on the mountain. Um, he, will not, he will not be the king of that people. He will not be enthroned upon that nation except by covenant. And even in, even in the garden, when the Lord placed Adam and Eve, but especially Adam, in Eden, he immediately entered uh, into an agreement with him and a friendship with him, but not apart from covenant. The Lord God does nothing except by covenant. And he reveals his righteousness in it, and he reveals his mercy in it. Uh, and that is what we are seeing here again. This is uh, forward progress in redemptive history. And some things are entirely new, as the form of the administration of the covenant is much different under Moses as it is Abraham. But uh, the essence of it is the same. God has not changed. The people were still of the stock of fallen Adam. 
We're, st we're still sinners by nature. We need redemption. God redeems His people by promise, but never aside from covenant. This is to say, and I'm just will preach it now, if you don't know the terms of God's contract with you for salvation, you're lost. You're lost. At one time when, uh, when uh, my, the corporation I was working with was, was really reviewing a lot of people's performance and firing a lot of people, people were going to lawyers and they said, well, what can we do? Do we have any rights? Is there a, you know, the answer is always the same. Did you enter into this employment by contract? Do you have something here written where you had an agreement that this, this, this would be done for you and you would be doing it for this, for them? And do you, Can you procure such a contract? Well, no. Well, we don't have a case here. And unless you have, can show some kind of contract before Jehovah on the last day, you got nothing to show. Nothing. That's why this national covenant is very important. And we'll see that the terms are shadowy with respect to the brightness of the gospel terms, they're very, more, very, very much more explicit in the, in the New Testament. And yet, they're there in the bud, as we say in the nut. The germ of all graces of Christ in the New, in the New Testament are right here. If we uh, take our time and explore this nice place on the mountain, we're parked at Horeb, we're going to be parked here a little while. So that's the context. Uh, Jehovah's covenant promises... Uh, blessing and hope to his people. That's a contract. In, in, in Spanish, pacto. It's a pact. The essential terms of the covenant being previously offered by Jehovah. The covenant now requires affirmation, or as you would, confirmation. And it requires acceptance uh, and a response by the people. And then, and then the Lord seals the covenant, both the, by the sacrifice of the altar, sprinkling of the altar, and the sprinkling of the people. That is the sealing of the covenant. Teaching him is as follows. Jehovah's nation uh, must affirm the covenant that's offered by their king. The covenant is on the table. Even By the way, Christ is our covenant, Isaiah 42. Christ is given as a covenant for the peoples. And, and he's on the table, literally. In the, in the bread and, the, and, and uh, the blood, that is to say, spiritually, he's still on the table. The offer is there. The feast is there. You come to the feast. The contract needs to be taken up by sinners, and Christ is that contract. Um, the bonding of the nation to their king is by covenant. There's a bond. It's there by covenant. Which covenant is inaugurated by accepting the book of the covenant, that is to say, the terms of the book of the covenant, the teaching and the commandments of God, and by the sprinkling of the blood. That, that's the sealing of the covenant. It's always by sacrifice. Without sacrifice, without the shedding of blood, there is no, there is no covenant and there is no remission of sins. If, if you're confused on that point, reread the epistle to the Hebrews. Anyway, let's march on. Here are some points to this sermon. Three points. First, we see that Jehovah's covenant is conveyed to his people by their representatives. It, it, the whole nation is covenanted with God, but the, 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 the people come forward by representatives. The nation's representatives uh, go up before the presence of Jehovah. Chiefly, Moses 
holding a distinguished and privileged position. Um, and I think here he represents, at first, or at least now initially in the reading of this text, the prophetic office. Because he's receiving a revelation and words from the Lord and he's conveying it to the people. Before the covenant um, is sealed, he, he, he is receiving word content and he's delivering that word content to the people. And, and that's the job of the prophetic office, not the kingly office and not the priestly office. Aaron and his sons Nadab and Abihu also are asked to come up for a distance, not as close as Moses goes. Moses is going to go all the way up to speak to, with, with Jehovah God face to face. However, uh, Nadab and uh, Abihu and, and Aaron, representing the priestly class, they come. And pre the priests are, are also representatives, and they, they will go to from the people and to Jehovah and from Jehovah back to the people. Uh, and that will be instituted an ordinance uh, or a means of grace in Israel in the Old Testament. As long as there are sacrifices, as long as there are altars, as long as there is blood, there will be priests. Now, in the New Testament, we could talk about our priestly duty, but that's, that's just, we speak in spiritualized terms. We have no priests, none in the New Testament, because we have no altar, because that altar has been fulfilled in Christ. And so there are very, very many churches that are extremely confused when they have altars and priests, because that is absolutely a Judaizing of the church. They're confused. They've Judaized the church. We don't, have, we don't have any priests except Christ, and he's of a different order. Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, represent the priestly office. They go to Jehovah from the people and to the people from Jehovah. Then there are 70 elders, and uh, these represent the people themselves. They're distinguished by, by gifts uh, and by spiritual acumen. Uh, they, Israel, as a people, had elders during their time of captivity in Egypt. And so it seems that this is a, a long-standing office among God's people. Now, the elders in the Greek translation of the Hebrew is presbyter. And I'm happy to say that this is a Presbyterian church here at Sinai. Now, you can giggle if you want, but I'm convinced of it. This is a Presbyterian church. The rest of the nation, they're not presbyters. They're not priests. They're not kings. They're not prophets. Now there we see a, a, a mighty distinction with the, uh, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and having union with Christ, the risen Christ in heaven, he bears the three offices. And as long as we have union in the Holy Spirit with Christ, the head of the church, we share three offices. <laughs> we reign with Christ as kings. We, we share the prophetic office in understanding the word and in, by the way, in sharing the word. And we pray with one another as priests and we we supplicate for one another and give thanks, and we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That's our spiritual function. So in the New Testament, we, we have the fulfillment of what Moses said. He corrected Joshua. Joshua complained to Moses, look at all the people here. People are prophesying, Lord, they're making a mess in the camp. Everybody's out of control. He goes, ah, don't worry about that. Would that all of God's people be prophets? Well, well, that's what we have in the New Testament. And that's why I, that's why I apply the word so carefully and so so closely to you because I, I, I expect you who've made a confession in Christ to act like priests. And why shouldn't I? That's what the Bible says you are. Uh, the Lord demands a lot from you, so do I. I'm only his mouthpiece. 
But you see, the rest of the nation back then uh, worships from afar and has their representative. Now, that's still true in this sense in the New Testament, that Christ is the one who has approached us as our best and only, and only really sufficient representative. And so we don't see the Lord face to face. The Lord Jesus is our forerunner, having gone through the curtain, of, uh, the torn curtain of his body and entered into the holiest places, not as a pattern and prototype on Mount Sinai, but as the, the, the essential heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father, the Almighty. But you see here, only Moses is a type of a mediator, um, and he does bear the distinction of the three offices. Uh, he comes near. Uh, Moses is a ruler uh, in, in Israel. So he, he bears the judging of the kingly office, as well as the priestly making intercession before the people. He, he prays mightily. His outstretched arms there at the war against Amalek is what won the day, the field of battle. And he is, of course, a prophet, but primarily he's a prophet. The other representatives here um, are not mediators. They, they do not attain they do not attain the dignity of Moses, who bears all three. And so they are asked to come near, but not as far up the mountain. The rest of the people, they're forbidden to come near. And in so much as an animal touches the foot of a mountain, he must die. The Lord is holy. This is what, this is what he has revealed himself to be. And so the nation's uh, representatives then are... are, are uh, the nation's representatives then go down to the people, and they are witnesses. They are witnesses from the throne of God on the mountain to convey Jehovah's messages, okay, as to the verity of it, of what they've seen. They're going to dine with Jehovah. They're going to see him enthroned above the sapphire. They're going to see a lot of things. It's very glorious. And they're going to say, hey, this is, <laughs> this is the real deal, guys. This is it. This is, this is our God. We're not kidding. This is not a conspiracy. All right. The three offices then are essential in salvation. The three offices are essential to Jehovah's salvation. And so the question I ask is, do, do you see them? Do you understand that these three offices are in the Lord Jesus? Even in his earthly humiliation, he bore those three offices, prophet, priest, and king. As king, you can see him. He's, he, he has rule and authority over the demonic world. And over creation, he says to the seas and the wind, stop, and they stop. He has priestly, priestly uh, uh, office because he, he forgives sins. And he offers prayer on behalf of his, of his nation. You can see that in John 17. And as a prophet, of course, he is the teacher of Israel. And it was the, the spirit of Christ in the Old Testament that delivered his word in all ages and all times. So that's for you. Think that's a wonderful, wonderful place to meditate because if you have those three offices, your salvation is secure. If you lack any one of these, your salvation, uh, it's baseless. Jehovah requires these three offices. Notice, of course, uh, the Presbyterian structure here. It's representative. There's a ruling government. This is biblical. As for the leadership of the church, uh, although all the nation today in the New Testament are prophets, priests, and kings, yet, yet there is a representative rule. It's clear from the 
from the, uh, Paul's epistle to Titus and, and to 1 Timothy, that elders are to teach and lead and rule. Um, any other structure is, well, it's altogether, it's hopeful, but it's, it's altogether too, uh, too, too unrealistic. The only way you can get a, a, along today with a, a congregational church is to have a, either an exceedingly small church with exceedingly high standards for membership, which we do not. We do not have exceedingly high standards for membership. You, you heard the, the five vows this morning. Any Christian can join the church. But if you're going to lead the church, the only way you can lead a church in a congregational, that is to say a non-representative church, a uh, Presbyterian government, is if you have a very dumbed down religion. And that is what we have all across America today. A very truncated expression of the whole counsel of God. It, it's sad. But that's what's going on in congregational churches. Jehovah's covenant then is conveyed to his people by representatives in the Old Testament and in the New. Point number two, Jehovah's people must freely accept the terms of Jehovah's covenant. Now, this, this, this may seem like an illegalized thing, but you know, it, it is a heart thing. It is a spiritual thing. And it requires faith. Now, that is to say, trust. Look, hasn't Jehovah found, uh, showed himself to be faithful and kind and merciful in extracting his people from Egypt? When are the, learn the people gonna, of, of Israel here in the wilderness going to learn that Jehovah is their help and shield, and he's an all-sufficient father to them. Is there any reason why this people up to this point should not be convinced that God will fight against their enemies, he will, save, he will deliver them, he will save them over again? Are you thirsty? He gives them springs of water in the desert. Are you hungry? He rains manna from heaven and quail because they get sick of the bread. Here's an altogether faithful God. And there's no reason why they shouldn't go forward. But it has to be a free, and not, and not a coerced, joining of the covenant. Otherwise, there is no worship or praise. And that's true in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Does this sound like a legalized thing, like an external religion? Do you know? With one, as one man, the nation as one man in one voice is to affirm the covenant. All of them. All of them, of course, they can. Uh, by word of mouth, which is sufficient, because by your words you will be uh, saved on the, on the last day, the judgment, and by your words you will be condemned. And whatever, of course, is in your heart will come out your mouth. Of course, there's people that will lie. They don't mean, they don't mean business with the Lord. They don't, they don't, they don't vow in sincerity. Well, that's why we need to examine ourselves. That's why before we come to the Lord's table, we need to vow, can I really ratify my baptism? If, if I can't ratify my baptism in sincerity, I, I have no business here at this table. I, gotta, I got some business to do with the Lord before I, I want to go ahead and sit at table and, and picture myself as a friend, an intimate friend, and at peace with all other Christians here. All right. All of them confess by word of mouth and by pledging obedience to the words of Jehovah. I said, well, there is a legal covenant, obedience. Well, my friends, <laughs> the gospel, have we forgotten? 
the, the gospel, in the gospel, the ministers command you to believe. God is commanding you to believe. The law of the gospel is believe and you'll be saved. The graciousness of the gospel is all who do believe are saved, <laughs> but there's still law and gospel. And so uh, Paul in his epistles speaks about the obedience of faith, the obedience of the gospel. All who obey the gospel, says Paul, are saved. Every time you see the word obedience, don't think, oh, law, God, it, uh, law, legalism, oh, another construct of the covenant of works. Don't, you don't have to go there. Think it through. Think it through. Tease it out. They all confess it as one man by pledging obedience. After the people's acceptance of the covenant, and this is what blew me away in the first light, after the, after the people's acceptance of the covenant, Moses writes down the words of, of Jehovah. You know, why bother if nobody's, nobody's in on it, you know, right? Why bother? But they are, they are in on it. And this is the beginnings of Scripture as the Word of God. And this is also the end of the oral tradition. Now, there are churches. They don't believe that. And much of oral tradition is, is said to have been kept from apostolic times. And when it differs with the Scriptures, different councils, different divine, you know, fathers, Latin fathers, Greek fathers will... You know, they, they didn't know what to do with that. Um, because sometimes the traditions of the forefathers served them well, sometimes not. But the Reformation, the Reformers said, enough of this. Enough of this. The Word of God, the Scriptures of the New and the Old Testaments are the only rule of faith and practice. No more oral tradition. But it should have been the case here. It should have been the case here. If it's, if it's written, thus that the Lord, fine. Now, of course, you've got a moving target because Scripture is being added on. The, the canon is still open. It's not gelled. And so when the Lord sends prophets, of course, they're speaking new revelatory content. But if you look at, even then, if you look very carefully at the prophets of the Old Testament, all they're doing is, as it were, footnoting Moses. The foundations of all of the Bible are in the, foot, the first five. Everything's there. And all you have to do is footnote, like, like the rest of philosophy is a footnote of Plato. The rest of the, of the whole of the Bible is but a footnote to Moses. And you may not be able to see that, but you've got to keep reading your Bibles until you do. The prophets in no way contradicted each other and in every way upholded every jot and tittle of Moses. Even the Lord Jesus, who in that sense, in that sense, Really had nothing new for us, but in, but it, but in the way it was administered, it was very very new. Uh, the beginning of the scripture, then, write down the word of God. Less likely to be corrupted, easier to transmit, available to more and more people. Moses then will write the first five books, and he will write a psalm. The first psalm was written by Moses, Psalm ninety. Um, and in verse 7 here, that transcript is called the Book of the Covenant. Uh, maybe we should be calling our Bible the Book of the Covenant. That's what it really is. And of course, as much as it, re it reveals Jesus, it's, it, it, Jesus is the covenant of God unto all nations. I'm given, he's given us his servant as the covenant. Um, but Jehovah's, Jehovah's people here, you see the voluntary nature 
of their coming forward before God, but only upon first hearing rational terms. And here we have to distinguish a lot of the new measures that came across in America the first time in the latter part of the 19th century, or middle part of the 19th century with Charles Finney, who believed that conversion was more of a matter of manipulating the will rather than instructing and convincing and converting the mind by the Holy Spirit. He didn't think that there was anything supernatural at all with, with conversion. Anybody could convert. Anybody can obey. Otherwise, why would commandments be given except that it's reasonable for every creature to hear it and to obey it? It's, uh, it's heresy. And he made a mess of all evangelical religion in America. Sadly, his roots were in Presbyterianism. That's how far people can fall from uh, from a really sound presentation of the gospel. But uh, uh, the people need to consider the rational terms of Jehovah. They need to, they need to hear what Jehovah is saying. Are these are these precepts good? Is is his, are his, is his law just? Uh, am I am I going to be able to go forward uh, and serve the Lord? Of course, he gives us other things besides his law. He's going to give us supports and, and, and sacrifices and all that that strengthen us as a means of grace. Christ was truly administered to Israel under Old Testament ceremonial terms, but truly, it was not just preparing for Messiah to come someday. They were receiving Christ and the grace of his salvation even in the Old Testament. Faith is still a supernatural act of, of the Spirit in the heart. And Jeremiah and others insisted that to worship God, you need a, to circumcise your hearts and not rend your, your garments. The new heart was promised. And the only, the only covenant that really needs no upgrading at all is not the Sinai covenant, which will be ratified under David and then fulfilled in Christ, but the only one that really sticks is the new covenant in the blood of Christ. But that's what's promised even in the Old Testament. The children who believed the messages and saw Christ in them could, result, could rejoice greatly, like Anna the prophetess at Jesus' birth, Simeon the prophet at Jesus' birth, Zacharias. All these people rejoiced in the coming of Christ and the, 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 uh, the uh, announcement of the angels because they saw Christ verily. Abraham saw Jesus' day and greatly rejoiced, you see. Uh, but uh, anyway, the terms must be considered rationally. And even Jesus says, look, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to count the cost. The rational terms, the absolute, absolute trust in Jesus of Nazareth was a feature of his earthly ministry. Count the cost. How many ministers are in a hurry to get people to confess and pray the sinner's prayer and walk the sawdust trail or whatever they got going in terms of a revival to come to this altar, bend the knee? But have you heard rationally what's being expected of you? He who wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save, will save it everlastingly. Count the cost. And then the covenant is sealed. And that's why, uh, you know, I mean, I was impressed, impressed me there in the reading. I had to pause and I lost my place. The Bible is written especially for God's covenant people. Don't try to understand this Bible alone. 
Well, I'll read the Bible. If I understand it, I'll become a Christian. The best, place to, the best place to understand this Bible, this communication, is in the assembly of God's people. There's where God shows himself strong. There's where he shines the brightest. Those are the ancient paths. Now, it is true. You can, yeah, go ahead, like the Ethiopian eunuch. Take up the scroll of Isaiah. Try to read it. Try. The wise men did something of that sort and, and availed to visit uh, Jesus in the manger, the, you know, the, the Magi, as we call them, the Chaldeans, or the, Chal the Chaldees. All right. But keep in mind that this is a letter from God who has propitiated. There's the blood that will seal the covenant. He's propitiated by covenant. He's at peace with, with his people. And uh, he's expressing himself in the terms of the covenant. And the covenant must be affirmed, as we did this morning when we joined a membership. Uh, that is, a again, a ratifying, uh, just like the sacrament is here, it's a ratifying that, yes, my interest is in the kingdom uh, and the visible expression of Christ's kingdom, or at least a visible. This is a, this is a church that's an a visible, not the visible. We're not, a, <laughs> we're not a cult here. It's a visible expression of the kingdom of God. So Jehovah's people must freely accept it, freely accept it from the heart. Otherwise, the covenant is uh, spurious, and you're a hypocrite. The third point is that Jehovah's covenant is sealed, and his people are consecrated in blood. Covenants require blood. And every time there's an, uh, an addition <clears throat> or uh, a change in the form of its administration, the essential terms of the covenant of grace are still there. But even in... <laughs> Even in the uh, their ratification in new and new forms of that same covenant of the grace, as in the New Testament, that change requires blood. It's a new contract, or it's an updated contract. The essence is ratified, but the new forms need to be also affirmed. And that's why Jesus lifts up the cup and said, this, this, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. It's my blood, and it's shed for you. That blood is what seals the contract. And the altar is sprinkled, and the people are sprinkled, and, and, and then we have an affirmed and confirmed uh, sealed covenant. Jehovah's covenant is sealed as people are consecrated in blood. Now, that is done in the assembly. Again, Christianity is not, a pro never has been, never will be a privatized religion. And you can go to some, Hindu, you know, I don't know what they do in Hinduism or Buddhism or Taoism. I don't know what these, these people up in the mountains do. These sages on the mind, they'd seem to be all alone with their giant brains, heightened spirituality, telling people, hey, but that's not the religion of Jehovah. It's only done in the context of his assembly. And as we're going to see in future preachings, that assembly grows and grows into multitudes. And that, that will be examined here in, in some of the figures of, in the Holy of Holies. Jehovah is in the midst of his people, and his people are multitudes. Because God is exceedingly gracious, and that is a feature of his covenant. It is delivered in an assembly. And for people who drop out of church nilly-willy have no idea what the nature of the covenant of God is, nor of the glory that he will display in the great assembly. Moses then, in hearing that this is the day which the covenant will be ratified and sealed, he, raises, he gets up early. 
I said, all right, this is a new day. Let's go. Let's, let's get this show on the road. There's nothing but gain, thinks Moses. Hey, this is going to be a great day. It's a blessing for God's people. There's strength here, and the Lord uh, is good. I know him. I've spoken to him, and this is a good deal. Let's sign up. How many people read the Old Testament with that kind of uh, zeal and, and rigor? How many people are eager to learn of the ways of the Lord, the Lord in the Old Testament? And most people read the Old Testament, you know, what a drag. I gotta, man, I can't wait to read, you know, the Gospel, the Gospel of John. God loves us there, but here is a. <laughs> They're confused. Moses wasn't confused. He rose early. He's eager. He's got a lot of zeal. He wants to inaugurate this covenant. All of Jehovah's covenants then require blood. I said that. Check it out. Hebrews 9 and verse 18. Nothing is ratified without blood. Moses then builds an altar. Now here's something. He builds an altar at the foot of the mountain. And this breaks convention. Because all of the religions of the world, and even all of the patriarchs before, most, mostly, mostly the sacrifices were on high places. Even Abraham had Moriah where he was going to sacrifice Isaac. <laughs> but he breaks the pattern here. I, I think this is very important. Uh, because uh, the sin of uh, willfully uh, offering uh, sacrifices to Jehovah, not according to the blueprint here offered, but according to what we would call conservative tradition, <laughs> that has to be looked at. That being conservative in religion is not going to save you. The word, of, the word of God is going to be saving you. The tradition, the conservative churches might be doing things that are not acceptable to God. We don't have two rules for worship. One is the word of God, which is the only rule of faith and practice, and, you know, the way the church used to worship in 1940. And we, don't do that. we have to examine everything, every thought captive to the Lord. So he, he builds this altar at the foot of the mountain. And then he, he erects 12 uh, uh, pillars representing the 12 tribes, kind of as a memorial. And that's what was done in the Old Testament times. Uh, you know, it was done in, in Genesis 28. Read that on your own. Uh, it's, a, it's a very eventful day. And we memorialize event, events in the, in the life of the church. And we're going to celebrate 50 years. There's nothing in the Bible that condemns the celebration of a church having been established, a particular church for 50 years. It's just a memorial. It's an important date. We're celebrating all of 2024, 50 years. There, um, at that place, the young men sacrificed oxen to Jehovah, and, and they're significant. There's two kinds of offerings. There's burnt offerings, and these are, represent atonement for sin. The offerings themselves did, did, there was forgiveness in that act, even though it was typological. But those who believed Jehovah by faith as to, uh, they saw the substitutionary uh, nature of it, and they were hoping in God that their souls, they would not, God would not require their life, but this animal died for them. They saw the equity of it somehow and believed God entrusted them, and they were saved by it. It's not mere formality, those who approached it by faith. So burnt offerings represent here atonement for sin, and peace offerings, once sin has been dealt with, once sin is propitiated and begun to be expiated, 
then we have peace offerings, which represent fellowship, friendship, friendship with God. And this is a, a emblematic again. The body is broken, the sacrifice is memorialized, uh, but it's also a peace offering because we have fellowship here at the table. The Lord is, is propitiated not at this table. This is not really an altar. The Lord's body was an altar uh, at the cross. And once, once offered for sinners, as to as many as believe they avail of that blood. Okay, Moses used the blood of the oxen for consecrating the people and the altar by sprinkling. And this uh, is a rule in uh, and, uh, Leviticus 8 and, and uh, verse 30. We're not going to go to Leviticus, I don't think, but if you'll read that on your own, you'll gain the instruction. Moses draws attention, um, as does Jesus in Matthew 26 at the communion table. Behold, this is this 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 is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant in my blood. Look, it's a behold, it's a marker. Uh, for for emphasis, um, again, it should very much remind the people of the redemption, the Passover, uh, Exodus chapter twelve. We're in chapter twenty-five, Exodus chapter twelve. Should remind them of that. The blood on the lentil of their houses is what saved them from the destroying angel that passed over them when they saw the blood. The people are, are I'm sure, they were getting, they're beginning to get this. <laughs> they're beginning that that blood covers. Blood, blood saves. Half of the blood sprinkled on the altar, half the blood, the people, and that is a form of saying this is a covenant and there's two parties. And the blood sanctifies both. The blood sanctifies both. All right, Moses then read the first, um, uh, first read the book of the, of the covenant before sprinkling the people. Ordinances without the word do nothing. You can serve uh, communion wafers until kingdom come, and it's not going to do anybody any good, except that there be a word of promise and some response of faith in the heart. We do not give the Lord's body to babies. It does them absolutely good, and it might do them exceedingly great harm. All right? The people then have to rationally hear, because it's the word. This is where this is where in Reformed churches traditionally, not not, not in Reformed churches that 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 had huge cathedrals before the Reformation. In those days, the lecture, uh, the lectory, and the pulpit were at the side, and the altar was the main was the main event. So you'll see that when you visit Geneva and other places, the pulpit is not in the middle. But once, the, but once church structures, buildings were being built later, the preeminency of the word was pictured in this way, that the word is above and preeminent over the sacrament. It's in line with the sacrament. Because it's one thing. It's Christ and all of his benefits. It's one thing. It's not two things. But the word sanctifies. And the word of, uh, the word of consecration by the minister to separate the bread and this wine from ordinary use to special use is, is required because that's the thanksgiving that consecrates both your food at the table and the, the, the elements at the Lord's table. The word sanctifies. 
Jesus prays in Gethsemane, sanctify them, Lord, by um, sanctify them, Lord, by your truth. He says, but your word is truth. If we're going to be sanctified, we're going to be sanctified in truth by the Lord's word. All right. So it's the word of the covenant that consecrates the blood and the people. And again, the Lord here, the, again, the people vowed to obey Jehovah. It's that serious. It's that serious an engagement. Their souls depend on it. Israel's fate as a nation and people depend on it. Then Jehovah's covenant was sealed. And then this covenant is inaugurated. Now you're going to be going to see that uh, after this division, we're going to see how the tabernacle is built. We'll have a, a small hiatus, and then we're going to see how the covenant is administered by the end of the, of the book of Exodus. But the covenant being in place, all things go forward. And this is, as it were, the midpoint of the book of Exodus. The Lord has brought them out of Egypt, and the turning point, as it were, is the inflection point is now they're covenanted. It's sort of like the middle of the book. Without the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ on the cross, uh, there's no effecting, there's no sealing the covenant. Because the covenant of grace pictured does nothing except for the covenant of grace actuated and applied. It's the blood of Christ that availed then and the blood of Christ that avails now. All covenants require blood. Essentially, all covenants require the blood of the Lamb of God that is spilled. But then Jesus said at the cross, it is finished. It is finished that all the terms of the covenant for forgiveness and peace with God were met. That's where righteousness and justice have, have kissed. Justice and mercy spring up from the ground in the resurrection of Christ. Let me conclude this preaching. Jehovah's nation must affirm the covenant offered by their king. That's his, that's his church. His people must affirm it. The bonding of the nation to their king is by covenant. Nothing informal, nothing easy coming into the church. We drift, hi, oh, it's good to see you. Oh, where are they? Oh, they're not here this well. They haven't been to church in a, in a year. Oh, well, maybe they'll drift in. Maybe something. The wind will blow from the east, and they usually come to church when the wind blows them in from the east. The covenant is inaugurated then by a, a rational accepting of the terms of the covenant. And here it's called the Book of the Covenant. It's a teaching. That's why it's called the Torah. Okay? And by the sprinkling of the blood, without which nothing is affected. My friends, you here and the hearing of the, the word of God are a holy nation, and you are consecrated to God by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. The blood consecrates. The Old Testament pattern is apparent in Jesus' great commission, but on a much larger scale. You see? Now, the thing to ask yourself before the Lord's Supper here is, do you still affirm the teaching of the Lord? The contract, every every. Every Lord's Day, every, every, especially every, time, every Lord's Supper, we are asked to ratify the terms of our baptism, ratify the terms of our calling. Are you ready? Are you willing? Will you follow him? In the sprinkling of blood, even in union with Christ and martyrs, and this is, this is where B.B. Warfield considers all of the church a martyr, because all of the church is, bla is bathed in blood. And some are bathed in real blood, many in the history of the Christian church, even today. 
are being persecuted and are, are baptized in, in blood. In blood. Now, all the apostles except John were. And Jesus himself was the bloodiest. Because he is the covenant. And he's mightily sprinkled with blood. More on that later when I consider, when we consider the cherubim and the, and the, and the covering uh, of the ark. Will you follow him in baptism? The blood of consecration. Not by oxen, but as was represented in A.J.'s baptism by water. The water baptism symbolizes a sprinkling of blood. We read that in the, from the book of our church order. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one people. One, one mouth saying amen. One Lord at the, at the head. One assembly. And it's easy to see this in the inauguration of the Mosaic and the New Covenants. Perfect peace, perfect unity. No heresy yet, no error of misunderstanding. In the beginning of the National Covenant and in the beginning of the New Testament, New Testament Church and from the lips of, of Jesus and the Apostles. Let's hold that as, as our aim and that's, that's what we want to do as a church. To be pure, to be unified, to be holy. Um, but you know, sin ruins much and our, our waywardness uh, and our sin gets in the way of understanding the Lord's purity, unity of God's church. We should be repenting. We should be asking the Lord uh, for grace that we might return to the pattern here at the foot of Mount Sinai and in the apostolic preaching in the New Testament. So read and study and, and, and you know, read and study the Bible. Claim that blood which is your peace, but it also, it's, it's a blood that expiates. It's a blood that seals every promise. Consecrate then yourself as those who have been sprinkled. All that is sprinkled is holy. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul expressly says that the children of believers are holy, and that's why they, they come under the baptism. All holy things are, are consecrated and sprinkled in the Old Testament and in the New. They're sprinkled by the baptism. And uh, renew your, your covenant and remember your covenant often. We celebrate our, uh, our anniversaries with our, our wedding anniversaries. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate all kinds of things. You need to keep in mind that the church celebrates the covenant of grace, especially at the Lord's table. My friends, Jesus Christ is offered to you as Jehovah's covenant. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. Thank Jehovah. You can thank God for bonding, bonding you to his son. There's a union there. There's, there's a, a welding. There's a welding there. You've been welded to his son. I'll, I'll explain what I mean when I get to the cherubim and the, the ark. And this is a, an eternal and sure covenant. And as long as your heart is pliable and your heart can amen, uh, you're in. We can thank God for this gospel that's preached in, this, in these terms. We can thank God for the gospel that is illustrated in sensible uh, terms here on the, on the table in simple gifts of wine and bread. The word that we preached uh, is what sanctifies this, but both word and sacrament presents the same thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified to you for your health. Let's uh, have the elders please come forward. We'll celebrate the Lord's table.
there's no need to repeat much of what I've already said because I, I, the sermon was a perfectly good fencing of the table if you were listening. Yeah, this table is for, is for sinners. God is holy, we're not. We need help, we need salvation. And uh, the Lord is our Savior, and He's our only Savior. And He offers us health and strength by the promise here presented. The gospel is, is pictured for us here. And if we would enjoin that this table by faith, we will receive the goodness of it. I don't think I needed to say anything else except that, you know, uh, if you're going to affirm the baptism, it is, it's imperative that you have been baptized. If you're receiving an ordinance that's helpful, you must have some experience in the assembly, assembling God's people. That is to say, in Presbyterian terms, we say that membership, other churches, I don't know what they got going on, but you need to be a regular, I suppose, you know. Uh, in the assembly, because that's where God meets His people. The covenant is is not individual. Uh, it applies to every individual, but it's it's always given in the in the greater context of God's people. So church attendance, and if you can do that, baptism, and you have a lively faith, this table is for you. It's not a Presbyterian table; it's a Christian table. Let me read to you the words of administration. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, Corinthians, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His body is like the pillar. It's a memorial. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Another, another pillar is to be kept. Churches that don't serve the Lord's table, I don't know what they're doing. Neither do they. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here's the prophetic office. And it's yours. And who's witnessing? Oh, we already know this. We do this every week. Principalities, angels, we, they're here in our, in our midst. They are watching. The Lord is watching. There's a multitude of principalities that, that are interested in the worship. And that's what you proclaim. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks damnation or, or judgment on himself. Not damnation, I'm sorry. Judgment, that's a different word. Whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned, may not be condemned along with the world. The world is under wrath, under the wrath and the curse of God. Those that do not avail of his covenant in blood remain and abide under the wrath and curse of God. They, they, they are headed to eternal destruction and condemnation. That's why we need to get the word out. That's why we need to get ministers out. That's why we need to preach and set up churches. That's what our business is as Christians. And this word seals it. Now let's ask the Lord to consecrate these simple elements. They're common but at the worship, they become holy by the word. Lord, by your word, we do pray.
And you take these simple gifts and uh, charge them in our own minds with meaning. And cause them to be pillars of remembrance of your broken body on behalf of sinners. Our substitute, we should have been broken for our own sin. And yet you, you Lord, offer your body torn that we may enter the holy place. And the blood, consecrate this, consecrate this uh, wine uh, for your special use uh, by your word of promise. For we mean to worship you as you have taught us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This one?